invite you to take a copy of scripture and turn to John's one. Turn to John one. Earlier in the service, I thought I'd read the first verse of one to eighteen. And now we're going to be in twenty five. Reading verses one to five. So we'll look at John chapter one, beginning in verse one, and read through to verse five. Beginning in verse one. This is God's word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Amen. Let's go to Lord Father, we thank you and praise you for your word. Lord, we pray right now that you would help us in this time. Pray that you would remove any distractions or hindrances that would keep us from understanding and receiving your word. Father, we pray that this word would explode in our own minds and hearts, that we would see the glory of who Jesus is, and that we would worship him. It's in his name we pray. Amen. We've been in a series through the Gospel of John during this Christmas season. We've been looking at what John has to tell us about the person of Jesus. And so this morning we're going back to the beginning of the Gospel of John. In the beginning of the Gospel of John here we see that when John sits down to pen his Gospel, he wastes no time in telling us who Jesus is. Really what we see here in these opening verses is a poetic and glorious description of the incarnation of the Son of God taking on flesh, becoming a man, and dwelling among us. And this is what we celebrate at Christmas. It's the incarnation. God taking on flesh and becoming a man. Now I want us to look at this this morning and see what John has to tell us in these verses about the person of Jesus. And I'll just... I'll, I want to say this up front, that the truths that John reveals about Jesus in these verses are startling, and they are life-changing. And in fact, each of these truths should lead us to worship. It's not just information about Jesus. There's a reason why John writes these verses poetically, because he wants to move. He doesn't just want to inform our heads, our minds. He wants to move our hearts to worship. To worship Jesus for who He truly is. And so this morning, I want us to consider six reasons to worship Jesus. Six reasons to worship Jesus. And we'll see each one from our text this morning. The first is this. Jesus is the Logos. Jesus is the Logos. Now, that's a word that many of you may not have heard before. You may wonder how to spell that. If you're taking notes, it's L-O-G-O-S. L-O-G-O-S. Jesus is the Logos. Look there in chapter 1, verse 1, and we read these words. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, John, in writing this gospel, would have originally... Did, originally wrote the gospel in Greek. And in Greek, word is logos. So we could read this opening verse this way. In the beginning was the logos. 
and the Logos was with God, and the Logos was God. Now, there's been a lot of debate about the meaning behind this word Logos and why John chose to use this word in the opening of his gospel. We know that this word had great significance in Greek culture. We also know, though, that the the primary source of John's thought and his view of the world was the Old Testament scriptures. This is apparent as we read through the Gospel of John because he regularly cites the Old Testament scriptures. He makes allusions to the Old Testament scriptures. And as we think about the Old Testament scriptures, there are very few themes that are as prevalent and dominant as the Word of God. In the Old Testament scriptures, it is the Word of God that is God's self-expression of Himself. It's the way he expresses himself. It's the way he reveals himself. It's through the word, actually, that God creates the universe. It's through his word that God saves his people. It's through the word that God makes himself known to us. And so it makes sense here in these opening verses that John would identify Jesus as the word of God. Because, and think about this, it's by words, it's by speech that we express ourselves. It's by words, it's by speech that we reveal our thoughts and our emotions and, and who we are. And what John is attempting to tell us here is that Jesus is the ultimate self-expression of God. Jesus is the ultimate revelation of God. You see, in the Old Testament scriptures, God spoke to us through prophets God spoke to us through his law. But what John is saying here is that Jesus, in Jesus, God will ultimately speak to us through the person of Jesus and reveal himself to us ultimately in Jesus. So Jesus is the self-expression of God. But this word logos also, not only was it significant in the Old Testament scriptures, this word logos also was very significant in Greek culture and philosophy. And so John, who's writing in Greek, who's writing in Greek culture, John knew this well. And most of the philosophers in that day believed that logos was the rational principle that if you were able to discover it, would tie down the whole universe together, would make sense of everything. It was the fundamental idea or thought or reason which would make sense of everything else. And so although John is working primarily from the Old Testament scriptures and an Old Testament background, using the word logos here is very intentional for his Greek audience. So if a Greek opened John's gospel and read the first verse, and he reads here the first verse, in the beginning was the logos, they can relate, they can say, I know what John is talking about. John's talking about the ultimate principle, the ultimate reality that ties everything together. But you see, here's the thing. The Greeks believed that the ultimate principle that tied everything together was a thought. It was an idea. It was an abstraction. Some claim that they knew what it was. Some claim that they didn't know what it was. But if you could discover it, then you you could make sense of everything else. But John, in contrast, says that the thing that ties together the whole universe is not a thought, it's not an idea, it's not an abstraction, 
but it's a person. That is revolutionary. That at the heart of the universe is not an idea, but a person. Ultimate reality is personal. This is significant for us today, you know, in the West, one of the, there are many different thoughts and ideas and philosophies that are appealed to that are essentially presented to us as the logos. If you understand this, if you get this, it'll make sense of everything else. So one of the ideas today that's presented to us, one of the philosophies is postmodernism. You may have heard that term before. It's a philosophy that essentially says there is no such thing as truth. Or if there is such a thing as truth, it's unattainable. There's no way we can know what it is. And so postmodernism is right. Truth is non-existent. It's unattainable. And then we must admit that we have no basis for distinguishing between what is right and what is wrong, what is just and what is unjust, what is loving and what is cruel, what is beautiful and what is perverse. But the reality is we can't live this way. You know, there are certain things in the world that are just true, whether we believe it or not, or whether we like it or not. We know this in mathematics, right? There are certain things that are true, whether you like it or not, or whether you believe it or not, it's just true. It's true in the medical field. It's true in so many areas of life. It's true in ethics and morality. So, for example, I know that a lot of us have been doing uh, Christmas shopping and that sort of time thing, uh, thing during this time of season. So we go out and get our gifts and everything, and traffic is crazy, right? And it's, it takes forever to get anywhere, and you're fighting traffic and Christmas shopping and everything. So we might be tempted, right? Somebody might be tempted at some time to just kind of ram into somebody and injure them or hurt them or even maybe kill someone. But the reality is, the reality is no matter where you're from or who you are, we know inherently that that's wrong, that that would be evil. It might make us feel better, but it's wrong. And so whether it's in this country or in places all over the world, there are laws against those things. And we can give thousands of other examples. The fact is that postmodernism, the philosophy itself, is even self-defeating. So for example, if you were to talk to somebody who was postmodern, and you would say, so you don't believe there's anything, uh, there's uh, any such thing as absolute truth, right? They would say, yes. You say, are you certain about that? Yes. Are you absolutely sure? Yes, I know beyond a shadow of a doubt there's no such thing as absolute truth. Well, you simply undermine the philosophy right there, right? It's self-defeating. You are absolutely asserting that there is no such thing as absolute truth. How do you know that? The philosophy itself is self-defeating. Listen, we can give many other examples as well, but the idea here is that there are different philosophies, there's different ideas, there's different thoughts that are presented to us, and if you get this, then you can make sense of everything else. John says no, that the heart of the universe is not a philosophy or an idea or a thought, and the heart of the universe is a person, and he makes sense of everything else. Because he defines, he reveals to us who God is, and he defines what love is, he defines what evil he defines what justice is. He defines what beauty is. He defines all of these things and makes sense of everything else. So my friends, I wonder this morning, in this chaotic and confusing world in which we live, is there a unifying principle that ties your life together? 
What gets you up in the morning? When you think about your life, when you think about the world in which you live, what, what brings meaning? What brings significance? What brings purpose? How do you make sense of things? Jesus, here John tells us, is the law of us. Jesus brings real meaning and ultimate meaning and significance to life. The second reason we see here in our text to worship Jesus is not only is he the logos, but he's eternal. He's eternal. Look there in verse 1 and 2 if we read these words. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Now, there are, if you, if you go to the New Testament and, and you open it up, at the beginning of the New Testament, there are four gospel accounts, okay? It's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Each of these are referred to as gospels, and they are all essentially biographies of the life of Jesus. And it's interesting because each one of these biographies begin in different places as it relates to the life of Jesus. So some of them will begin with the birth of Jesus, some of them will begin with the early ministry of Jesus. Uh, but what we see here with John is, it, is that he takes a different approach. John begins the biography of Jesus by going back further than the birth of Jesus, than the childhood of Jesus, than the ministry of Jesus. He goes back even further than creation itself. John goes back to eternity past. And John tells us that in eternity past, the Word, the Son of God, existed. Here he says, he opens up the very uh, first few words here, in the beginning. And for those of you who know your Bibles well, you know that these are the identical words that begin the Old Testament Scripture. So if you open up to the very first book in the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, it reads, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now my friends, that's not an accident. John intentionally chooses these words here to draw a direct connection and parallel to the very first verses in the Bible. In the beginning, Jesus existed. And so to understand the person of Jesus, we have to understand where Jesus comes from. And understand this, understand this, that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. As we think about Jesus the man, Jesus was born in Bethlehem. That's where his humanity begins. But as the Son of God, there was never a time when he did not exist. He is uncreated. He has no beginning. He is eternal. Before there was anything, even the smallest molecule or atom or particle in the universe, Jesus was. And so, as a result, we might then deduce that because Jesus is eternal, we might then assume that either Jesus is God, because he's eternal, or if he's not God, he was with God in God's eternality. But actually, John tells us here in these verses that the Word was both. That the Word was God and the Word was with God. And that leads us to our next two reasons why we should worship Jesus. The third is this. We've seen that Jesus is the Logos. We've seen that Jesus is eternal. The third truth we see about Jesus here is that Jesus is God. 
Look there at verses 1 and 2 and we read these words. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Now I mentioned that at the beginning of the New Testament, there's these four gospel accounts that essentially tell us about the person and the life of Jesus. And each one has its own unique emphasis regarding the person of Jesus. They'll stress certain things about Jesus. And in John's gospel, without a doubt, John's primary emphasis when he speaks about the person of Jesus is on this truth that Jesus is divine, that Jesus is God. In fact, John structures his entire gospel this way, so he begins right here at the beginning by making this bold statement, the Word was with God, and the Word was God, He was God. And then as you go through the gospel of John, there are a number of instances references to the fact that Jesus is divine, that he is God. But none are as explicit as Thomas's declaration at the end of the Gospel of John. You go through the whole Gospel, you get to the end of the Gospel of John. Some of you know the story. Thomas was one of Jesus' disciples. And Jesus, at this point in the story, he's been crucified. And the disciples are are, are panicking, they're fearful, but some of them are making a claim that Jesus has been raised from the dead and that they've seen him. And so Thomas gets this word that Jesus has been raised from the dead. You know, this is one of the things about the gospel account. Some people think, oh, well, the disciples, of course they believe Jesus was raised from the dead because they loved Jesus, and so they would be more inclined to believe fantastical things about Jesus. But in fact, that's not the case at all. What we see in the gospel accounts is that the disciples did not did not like any of this talk when Jesus was saying that he was going to die, that he was going to be crucified. They said, no, Jesus, don't talk this way. You're the Messiah. And when he talked about being raised from the dead, that he was going to die and then be raised, all this just went over their heads. They had no idea what they were talking about. Even when word started coming back after he had died, after they had seen him crucified, that he had been raised from the dead, they said, no, this is just like Thomas here. He said, this is just one too much. One too many. I cannot believe this. I've seen Jesus do miraculous things, but there's no way. I saw him crucified. There's no way he could be raised from the dead. So Thomas says, listen, I will not believe unless I see him and I touch the scars in his hand and his side. And Jesus in his grace and his mercy appears to Thomas along with the other disciples. And Thomas sees him and Thomas touches his hands, the scars in his hands, and the scar in his side. And Thomas makes this profession in John chapter 20, verse 28. My Lord and my God. And my friends, that is a remarkable statement, especially for a Jew who was fiercely, fiercely monotheistic and believed there was only one God. And for John then to record it in his gospel, that this Jesus is God and he is to be worshipped. And here's the thing Jesus, in Thomas responding to him this way, if Jesus was merely a prophet, then he would have had to refuse Thomas's declaration. If he was only a prophet, he would have said, No, 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 you got it all wrong. I am not God. If he did not do that, he would be blaspheming. But Jesus did not refuse Thomas's declaration. Rather, he received it. He accepted Thomas' declaration as worship, 
because what we see through the Gospel of John and the rest of the New Testament is that Jesus had this deep self-consciousness. It was at the core, the essence of who he was, that he was the God. That he had been sent by God. That he was God. And his mission in life was to make it known that he was not just a prophet, he was not just a philosopher, but he was a man, God with us. Fourth, we see, not only is Jesus the Lord, not only is he eternal, not only is he God, but fourth, we see that Jesus is with God. He is with God. Look there in verses 1 and 2. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Now, that word there, with, is a very small word. It's a simple word. But in the context of this passage, it is full of meaning and significance. We learn in these verses that the Word is God, and at the same time, the Word is distinct from God and has a relationship with God. Okay? So to be with Him, you must be distinct from Him. He's with Him in that He has a relationship with Him. Now what we see here in, in this verse, and, and there are many, many other verses we could point to in the Bible, what we see here is the seeds of what is known as the Christian doctrine of the Trinity. And it's something that, that we would assume would be the case, that if we really want to know who God is, if we want to understand who He is, that we would get into certain ideas and concepts that would be beyond us. It would be mysterious. Truly, that's the case with the doctrine of the Trinity. It's not something we can fully understand, fully comprehend. But what we see that the Scriptures teach us is that God is one. We worship one God. Okay? And he is three distinct persons. Within the Godhead, there are three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Those three persons are co-equal. They are co-divine. They are equally God. They are equal in essence and being and divinity. And they are distinct. Now listen. Here's the thing about the Christian doctrine of the Trinity. It is beautiful in so many ways, but let me just point to you one way that we see revealed here in this passage. The Christian doctrine of the Trinity reveals to us that not only is there a person at the heart of the cosmos, at the heart of the universe, not only is ultimate reality personal, but that person is relational. That person has always existed in relationship. There has never been a time when God has not been in relationship. Now that, that is a wonderful thing to realize. Can you know even some people will say, well, why did God create us? Right? Why did God create all of us? And some people say, well, you know, he was in eternity past, and there was nobody else around, and uh, he got bored, he didn't have anybody to talk to, he was lonely, and so he created us. That is not what the Bible says, right? That is not the reason why God created us. There was never a time where God was lonely. There's never been a time where God was not in relationship. God has always, always existed 
in mutual love and affection and sharing with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So John actually goes on to unpack this throughout the Gospels. Jesus talks about the fact that the Father loves the Son, and the Son loves the Father, and the Son sends the Holy Spirit. They are in relationship with one another. So Tim Cowher, a Christian pastor and theologian, says it this way, God is exploding with love and relationship in his inner being. God is exploding with love and relationship in his inner being. And so here's here's where it meets the ground level. Where does love come from? You know, a lot of people that that say, okay, we've got a a system that makes sense in the universe, especially like naturalists and so forth, that we we know how this came to be and this came to be and so forth, we can make sense of the universe. They don't, oftentimes, don't give a rationale for the greatest realities experience in life, like love. Where does love come from? Where do human relationships come from? Love and relationships are the overflow of an eternal God who has always existed in perfect, joyful, fully satisfying community, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so this Christmas season, you'll be getting together with family, you'll be seeing friends, you'll be eating meal around the table, and you long for that, and you want that. Where does that come from? You were created in the image of God. That's why friendship is good. That's why family is good. That's why marriage is good. That's why it's good for us to be members of a church and in a community of faith, committed to one another in relationship. Because we do this, not just because it makes us feel good. There's nothing wrong with that. That's good. But we do it ultimately because we've been created in the image of God and when we're in community with other human beings, we reflect the very nature and being of God. The Word was with God from eternity past. And for this, He should be worshipped. Fifth, Jesus is the Logos. Jesus is eternal. Jesus is God. Jesus is with God. Fifth, Jesus is life. He is life. Look there in verses 3 to 4 and we read these words. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. So here John tells us that Jesus is life. And he is the source of both physical life and he is the source of spiritual life. But it's apparent in these verses that the emphasis that John wants to make here is that Jesus is the source of physical life. In other words, he's the creator. So John states here what is regularly affirmed by other New Testament authors as well, that Christ was present at creation and that God created all things through him. So in Colossians chapter 1, verse 16, we read, For by them all things were created, in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through them and for him. Or the author of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2, But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, through whom he created the world. So Jesus 
it is through Jesus that all things were created. John Piper actually makes the point that this biblical vision of the origin of the universe stands in contrast to a purely atheistic or naturalist understanding of the origin of the universe. So atheists or naturalists would say that before life existed, before there was any human life, that sort of thing, there was just matter. There was particles, there was atoms, there was energy, stuff. They can't prove that. It's a statement of faith, but nonetheless, this is the way the story goes. That matter existed, and then that gave rise to life. But John makes it clear here, in contrast, that before matter existed, a person existed. Before matter existed, life existed. Therefore, physical matter does not give rise to life, but life gives rise to matter. And then matter and life exist. Again, there's this clear, intentional parallel that John is drawing between what he's saying here in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's Genesis 1.1. John begins by saying, in the beginning was the Word, and all things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Not only is he identifying Jesus as the Creator, as the source of all life, but he's also equating Jesus with God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, the Word created all things. Do you see the intentional parallel? He's saying again in a different way that Jesus is synonymous. The Word is synonymous with God. Jesus is the source of all life. Sixth and finally, Jesus should be worshipped because He is the light. He is the light. Look there in verses 4 and 5 and read these words. In Him was life, and the light was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness is not overcome. So here the final truth that we see in these verses is that Jesus is the light. We see this as we look at other passages in the Gospel of John. This is a, a significant theme in John's Gospel, that Jesus is the light. Jesus actually declares in John chapter 8, verse 12, I am the light of the world. And what is, what is light in John's Gospel? Light is synonymous with knowledge, with understanding. In particular, it's a knowledge or an understanding that transforms our lives. So, for example, if we think about it, I used this illustration earlier in an earlier sermon to make this point, but if we think about this concept of light, even today, light is a universal symbol for knowledge. So if, if someone in, in our own culture and society, if someone has like comes upon some new piece of knowledge or insight, how do we illustrate that? We draw a little cartoon person or cartoon figure with a light bulb above their head, right? Why? Because that light bulb represents new knowledge, new insight, new revelation. And here when it says Jesus is the light, the idea is that Jesus is the knowledge of God. Jesus reveals to us who God is. And Jesus does this in a couple of different ways. He does this as creator. We just saw in the verse before that it's through Jesus, it's by him that all things were created. So in creation, God is revealed to us. Jesus is revealing to us the knowledge of God. 
to the sun and the moon and the oceans and the grass and an elephant and an ant and the cool breeze and the, and the warmth of the sun. All of these things and a thousand other things we can point to. All the various colors that we see in the world, all of it shouts to us, there is a God. And he's glorious, and he's wonderful, and he's magnificent, and he's beautiful, and he's creative. As the psalmist says, the heavens declare the glory of God. Jesus reveals to us through creation the knowledge of God. But he also is the light and reveals to us the knowledge of God through his incarnation. So as the Son of God, the eternal Son of God, takes on flesh and dwells among us, is through his life and his ministry his words, and his teaching, and his death, and his resurrection, that God has revealed to us, that he's put on display. And you're saying, what would God look like? What would God say? What would God do? How would God respond? Look to Jesus. Jesus is the full and perfect expression and revelation of who God is. But notice what it says there in verse 5. The light of Jesus Shines in the darkness. He's revealing the knowledge of God. And the darkness is not overcome. Some translations read, and the darkness is not understood. It's the, it's the same, but it's not the same thing, but both are true. Both are taught in Scripture. The knowledge of God is revealed to us through Jesus. And the darkness is not understood. It. We don't receive it. We resist it. And therefore we oppose it, but we, we are not able to both of those things are true. And one of the things we learn here in this verse is that humanity loves the darkness. I mean, understand this. Like, understand what's happening here in these verses. It's revealed to us in these verses that Jesus, that we have this glorious vision of Jesus, that Jesus is the logos. He's the self-expression of God. He's the unifying principle that makes sense of all reality. He is eternal. He is uncreated. There's never a time where he has not existed. He is God himself. Yet at the same time, the Word of God, the Son of God, is distinct from God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. So he's always existed in community and in relationship. He is the source of all life. He is life and gives life to all things. And he is the light revealing the perfect knowledge of God to us. But when he appeared, when he comes on the human scene, when he becomes a child and takes on flesh and dwells among us, was he warmly received? Was he welcomed? Was he celebrated? Was he worshipped? Was he adored? By and large, no. What the scriptures tell us is that Jesus, by and large, was opposed and rejected. He was ridiculed and mocked. He was arrested and falsely accused. He was ultimately beaten and crucified and put to death. And why? Because humanity, you and me, in our natural state, we love darkness. Jesus says it this way in John chapter 3. You can turn there if you want to, verses 19 to 20. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, 
And the people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. And so our response, our natural response to the light is not to run into the light and to expose our own darkness and our own sin, confess it and receive God's forgiveness and grace and redemption and salvation. Rather, our natural response to the light is to oppose it and to resist it and to seek to smother it out and overcome it. But the good news is, the good news here in our text is that the darkness has not overcome the light, nor can it. You see, humanity's grand scheme to finally smother out the light forever took place in that cross. As religious and social and civil authorities and forces conspired together to crucify Jesus, to kill the light. And do you get a deeper sense of what was happening at the cross given what John teaches us here in these verses? At the cross, we don't just see a good man dying for a just cause. Rather, what John is telling us here is that at the cross, what we see is the eternal Son of God who knew perfect fellowship with His Father being murdered and crucified by His own creation. In fact, the Bible tells us that when Jesus was crucified at the cross, that a darkness fell over the entire land. That there was an earthquake in that moment. It was as though creation itself was in danger of ripping apart. And there was this sense that perhaps the light had been put out forever. Perhaps humanity would live in darkness forever as creation had murdered its creator. My friends, by the grace of God, that was not the end of the story. Jesus at the cross takes our darkness, he takes our sin, he takes our judgment, he takes our punishment, he dies, but then three days later, he is raised. He's raised from the dead to overcome sin and death and hell forever. And why was Jesus raised from the dead? Why did he do it? So that... We in our darkness would not overcome him, but he in his grace and love would overcome our darkness. Jesus was raised from the dead so that in his grace and love he would overcome our darkness. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome. Jesus rose victorious over darkness, over sin, over death, over hell. So that if we come to Him, if we confess our sins, if we yield to Him as our Savior, if we trust in Him as our Lord, He will save us, redeem us, make us new, change our lives so that we may know Him and love Him and serve Him and worship Him now and for eternity. This is who Jesus is. I pray that for each one of us as we celebrate this Christmas season, that we would remember that as we celebrate the coming of Jesus, we are celebrating and we are worshiping the Logos, who is eternal, 
who is God, who is with God, who is the creator of all things, the source of all true life, and who is the light, who came so that by his redemption, by his work on the cross and in the resurrection, he might overcome darkness forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and praise you for your word and for how you reveal to us who your son Jesus is through your word. Father, we pray that we would have a biblical and right understanding of the person of Jesus. And we pray as a result that it would change us and transform us. Lord, fill our hearts with gratitude and worship and awe this Christmas season as we celebrate the coming of your son. And it's in his name we pray.